start. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you that everyone was able to come here safely in the midst of the roads. We thank you for everyone in our church. I actively pray for the people in our church that are struggling right now. Mike and his sister who has passed away in particular, we pray for them in this time. We also ask that you be with us today as we're going into your word, as we're trying to strengthen ourselves by conforming our minds to a knowledge of you through the study of your word. We ask that you continue to give us diligence in doing that, not just right now, but also on a daily basis so that we're strengthening that which you want us to know. But also, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this study that you give us discernment, as always. I pray that you help us to figure out what it is that you want us to know about what our purpose is as the church, what we're doing here, um, who Israel is, why we can't be in the tribulational period. But more specifically, Lord, our goal is that the promises that you've made us, in particular, the church, that those promises would not be marginalized away by people who have theologies that aren't built upon your word. So I ask, Lord, that you equip us to be able to interact with those issues. And I thank you. I thank you for your promises. It's fantastic. I ask that you be with us in the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, good morning, everybody. We're going back into our study of the rapture. Again, over time, as we're looking at this, it, it might not even seem at this point as if we're doing a study of the rapture. We still are. We, we will actually be talking about the rapture today if we, if we make it that far. Um, but as far as what we're doing, we're actually trying to defend one of the core doctrines of the rapture known as imminence. We talked a little bit about this in review last week. Um, if you believe in a rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture, which is what we believe in this church, you have to believe that Jesus is coming before the tribulational period. That's the basic assumed definition of a pre-tribulational rapture. But within that, there's also a doctrine known as imminence, which is that Jesus can come back at any moment for his church. So what we're trying to accomplish here by going into the weeds and looking at the different arguments against that is to really test this doctrine, to test to see if this is in fact biblical. Now, we, d we do this in two ways. We've already done the first one, which is where we look at the New Testament and we try to figure out what does the New Testament actually say about the Lord's coming? Does it present it in a way that would make us think that it could happen at any moment? Does it act as if there are signs that would precede it? We, we have to ask and answer those questions before we can come to an idea of what this is, before we can build a definition of the air of expectancy that we see in the New Testament. So we tried to accomplish that, and I think we did a pretty good job. It took us many weeks. Um, more specifically, because there's a lot of information the New Testament has to say about the coming of the Lord. Um, it's actually a very prominent theme that being said, there's a completely other side of that coin within the same vein that we also have to answer, which is what are the different arguments against the idea of imminence? That being said, there are many arguments against that. So again, the test of a doctrine isn't just if we can provide what we would consider to be a biblical basis for that viewpoint. It's whether or not that viewpoint can actually stand the test of the alternative viewpoints of the other arguments that would go against that. So far... Uh, we haven't encountered anything that would dissuade us from believing in an imminent pre-tribulational rapture of the church by Jesus Christ to take us to heaven. 
We haven't found anything that would dissuade us from that. We've already looked at five of what I would consider to be some of the most prominent arguments brought by doctoral level professors, pastors, writers of different books, both in the uh, pre-wrath, post-tribulational, reformed covenant theology side of the aisles. And we've ended up working on the one that we're working on today. And we have been for many weeks up to this point, which is this idea that, well, God's always had believers and unbelievers on earth. And yes, we used to call believers Israel back in the day, but now we call them the church, the new Israel. So why would you say that the church isn't going to be part of the tribulational period? If you've been tracking with this study, you'll know that that's not my opinion. Obviously, I think that's a false line of reasoning. But that's why we're going into this and we're trying to build a dividing line between the church and Israel. The reason we do that is because we believe that they are completely distinct and different entities. Because they're distinct entities, we have to actually look at what they are, who they are in Christ, because Israel is also in Christ. If they believed in Jesus for their salvation, if they believed in a coming Messiah, as we see, they were accredited righteousness back in the Old Testament. But if all of that is the case, we still believe that they are two distinct entities. So what we're looking at today is answering the question, who is the nation of Israel? Now, we did that by looking at many different covenants because they're a covenanted nation. They're the elect nation of God, and they have several different covenants. They had their unconditional covenants as well as the conditional covenant was somewhat chronologically in the middle of the unconditional covenants. And those are pretty much the footprint or the basis for the nation of Israel. That's the foundation of their nation. Now, there's a lot of history that goes into the nation as well about how they have actually kept up their end of the bargain as far as the conditional covenant is concerned. Now, we looked at three different sections, and we're going to be finishing the third section today. We looked at their failure as a nation. Like, how did they actually align with the conditions of, if you do these good things, I will do good for you as a nation that God made with them. That uh, contract that God had with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw that they did not align with those conditions. We looked at their failure. We looked at the judgment for that failure, but because God's promises are never ending, we know that we can actually look at a future restoration of that nation. Now within that restoration, there are pretty much two facets to that. The first one is where they are essentially uh, restored to the land in preparation for judgment. And then there's a second facet where after they've been restored, two-thirds are purged off. The rebels are purged is how it's referred to. And then a third makes it through the fire to go into the kingdom. And it's through that one-third that the promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to the descendants of those people are actually find their fruition. So that is ultimately what we're going to be looking at today is this final of our three bullet point of the restoration. And we are going to make it through this, <laughs> this time, because this, this slide has taken us two weeks. Um, only, again, as we emphasized last week, because of the massive amount of information that pertains to Israel's restoration. Again, 
this is just a synopsis. This is a summary of those, uh, those scriptures. And so if you're going to try to push the idea that the church is now Israel, Israel is now the church, and try to make that an argument for why we can't be raptured before the tribulational period, why we have to go through it with Israel, then you have to find a way to answer every single one of these verses and find a different fulfillment. And you'll see people try to do that. We'll, we'll go into that a little bit today. Oftentimes they try to make them either about the uh, restoration af- from Babylon. Like that's a common one that people try to make, even though half of the verses are after that chronological point in time. Um, not half of them, but you, you're kind of getting the idea. Like it's just completely, completely nonsense. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that though. So to start, let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Starting in verses 29 going to 31. Now the point that we're trying to make right now is that Israel is going to be regathered. But not just that she is going to be regathered, but that she has to be regathered in order to receive the promises that God has made to her. Because again, it has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. It has everything to do with the promises that God made to Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter four, starting in verse 29, it says, but from there you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him. If you search for him with all of your heart and all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to you. Because again, it's based upon God. God God is the hinge point of all of these promises because it is through him the promises were made and it is through him the promises are fulfilled. This seems really basic, but again, that's uh, something that seems to get lost. So if you'll turn your Bibles to chapter 30 of the same book, we're going to start in verse 1 and make it to verse 10. Okay, so starting in verse 1, it says, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you called them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord From there, the Lord, your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. The Lord, your God will bring you into the land, which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord, your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I commanded you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. 
If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. This is largely giving the, uh, we'll call it the format of what will ultimately be their restoration later on. This was the format of their first restoration to land. This will be their format to um, at the end of the tribulational period going into the kingdom as well. Now, if we could turn our Bibles to the Isaiah chapter 27, we're going to continue kind of in the same vein as well. Just kind of right at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 12. It says, In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria, who were scattered in the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. Again, we're getting kind of an emphasis on Israel's regathering as a nation. If you can go a little bit farther, going to uh, chapter 43, starting in verse 5, that's where we're going to be reading from next. I know this is a lot of bouncing around, Um, but again, that's just because it's throughout the Old Testament. We're not just taking a verse out of context. For the record, we're also not taking 100 verses out of context. They're, they're, they're in context. So in any case, uh, Isaiah 43, starting in verse 5, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who, who is called by my name and who I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, if we could turn to the book of Jeremiah, starting in verse or chapter 16, that's where we're going to be shooting for next. So it says, starting in verse 14 of that chapter, therefore, behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he has banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Again, the thing that we're trying to emphasize by reading these is just their, their restoration, just moving forward. That's the, uh, that's the point that I'm trying to get across. Now, you'll notice, it, I mean, it probably looks like a lot of verses, but this is just a few of the verses. There's going to be a little bit of, sure. So what we're going to be getting into, and you can kind of get that clue by looking at the last verse that we're quoting, is this is going to be one that's happening at the end of the tribulational period. Yeah, the question was, when is this regathering going to actually come to fruition? That was the question that was asked for the people online that didn't hear it. At the end of the tribulation is the one that we're trying to talk about right now. Because as we mentioned, just looking a little bit back in context, what we talked about last week was the tribulational period in terms of the purging of the rebels moving forward. So now what we're trying to make a reference to are verses that give the function 
because again, that was kind of the covenant they had with the Lord, where if they obeyed, he would regather them. That was because one of the punishments for their disobedience was their scattering. And so largely what we're trying to accomplish is showing that they will essentially be scattered up until the end of the tribulational period, and then he will do a regathering of the elect. That, but now I'm, now I'm spoiling Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. But yeah, so that's essentially what it's talking about, if that answers the question. So the next verse uh, that we're looking forward is just a little bit farther in the book of Jeremiah. If you'll go to Jeremiah chapter 31, which we all ought to be very comfortable with, We should be able to loosely have this memorized at this point. (laughs) So anyway, so starting in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. And it's going to say, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim and give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child, together, a great company, and they will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a path on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. It says in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, our nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather them and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So a couple, one thought as we're moving into this is that a lot of people will see these verses and see that some of them pertain to Babylon. But what you'll notice is that some of the verses do pertain specifically to Babylon, but there's also an overarching theme that extends beyond Babylon. It talks about the ends of the earth. It talks about from the east and the west, from the north and the south. And so when we see that, we, we understand that this is going beyond that point. And because there's been no regathering that is specifically within that vein that has happened in the past, we know that this is largely talking about something yet still future. And we know from, as we're going to be reading in Matthew 24, that this happens chronologically at the end of the tribulational period. Because you could even look at it that way. There are two regatherings in that time period. We're, we're looking at one of them right now where they're being regathered to Israel in preparation for judgment. But later on, they're also going to be regathered at the end of the trib in preparation for blessing. So I, I hope that clears it up a little bit because it can get pretty complicated because we are going through a large amount of material not just in in the verses that we're quoting but chronologically through the ages as god was revealing this information and so it can get it can get pretty heavy as we're moving forward but that's kind of what we're shooting for and so if you see a verse that seems specific to babylon chances are it's specifically talking about restoration from babylonian captivity to uh jerusalem Other times it goes beyond that. So that's kind of what we're focusing right now is the ones that go beyond the Babylonian captivity. Now, that being said, let's go to the book of Ezekiel starting in chapter 11. That's going to be what we read next. Verses 14 through 18. It says... Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, 
are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, this land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. More specifically, in verse 18, he says, when they come here, they will remove all detestable things and all of its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Because again, what does that remind us of? That reminds us of the new covenant. Now, one of the things we're going to be looking at later is the fact that the new covenant found its ratification at the shed blood of Jesus, but it didn't find its enactment in full because that happens when, when this happens, when does this happen at the end of the tribulation and going into the kingdom? Because that's when they actually see the things of the new covenant that we've studied a little bit because we did that little summary of what the new covenant was a few weeks ago. So just a passing note as we're moving forward. If we could turn to the book of Amos, we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. It says, Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will be rebuilt and ruin the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. And I've already made this point of emphasis, but the one that I've been trying to make is that it is God that is going to do the regathering. It's God that's going to do the building. I mean, this is all glory be to God. This is what he is going to be doing in and through the nation of Israel moving forward. But what you'll notice is that it doesn't add a little side note that mentions how this is actually going to be done through the church. And we just misunderstood what Israel and the church meant later on. Um, In fact, as we're going to be getting into when we look at the distinctions between the two, there are far more differences than there are similarities between the church and Israel. The main point of similarity is that they believe in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and that they came to salvation through faith. And those are pretty much where the similarities find their separation between the church and Israel. So many differences, but we'll get into that later. If you turn your Bibles to Zechariah uh, chapter 10, two more verses and we'll be out of this slide. I'm probably more excited than anybody in this room to to move past this point. Um, Not because it's not good information. There's so much good stuff here, but the issue right now is that it is because there's so much information that we come to the conclusion that we're ultimately going to be revealing in the next couple of weeks about this particular subject. There's just so many promises of their national restoration. And when you start saying, let's just pretend for devil's advocate that this was the church. Let's just pretend. 
I'm, I can't emphasize that enough. This is pretending because this isn't real. This isn't even biblical. But let's pretend that the Bible says they're synonymous. Let's pretend that. If that's the case, then it wouldn't really make a lot of sense for him to say restoring Israel to the land. Okay, we can pretend like the land is some sort of symbolic construct for the heart and or uh, heaven. We'll pretend like heaven is land. Some people have come to that conclusion too. Um, I don't encourage reading as many commentaries as you can find. You'll come up with a lot of different viewpoints. <laughs> we'll call it that. But in general, let's pretend that's the case. Okay, so why is it saying that Israel, that we're, we're saying is synonymous with the church, is not only going to be restored to the land, but they're going to be restored to the land in accordance with the blessing side of the Mosaic Covenant, which I thought was given to Israel. Um, but they're not just restored to the land, they're restored to a very specific piece of land in Jerusalem from all corners of the nations. So again, I mean, we can, we can say that these things are similar for the church. We can try to say that these things happened in the past, but whether you're looking at Joshua and the fact that they didn't really take possession and ownership of all the land that they were promised per the promises to Abraham, or whether or not you're looking at any other facet of that, I mean, these are so distinct. We would have to do mental and biblical gymnastics just to get out of the conclusion that these are promises given to Israel and these promises are still yet future for us. So on that note, Zechariah chapter 10, starting in verse eight, it says, I will whistle for them to gather them together for I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries and obey with their children will live and come back. And they with their children would live and come back. And I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And they will pass through the sea of distress and he will strike the waves of the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in his name, they will walk, declares the Lord. Finally, if you want to jump to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, we spent several weeks on this. So this is going to be like a helpful reminder and review to us, starting in chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. I'll give you a second to get there. It says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That would be the second coming. What happens right after the second coming? says, verse 31, and he will send forth his angels, this is Jesus, with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So we just read a lot of verses that were talking about him regathering a people from the east to the west, from the north to the south. So who could he be talking about here? Sounds a lot like Israel. Um, now, a lot of people in, and we're going to be getting into 
We'll do a summarized version of this when we get into the idea of the post-tribulational rapture later. But this is where they find, in large measure, the post-tribulational rapture. Because if you look at it chronologically, I mean, he's gathering the elect from the four winds. Again, completely missing all the verses we have really in the bottom two bullet points there that are specifying that this is Israel. Now, we summarized that when we went through Matthew 24, talking about why I don't think 24 is talking about the rapture. But at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind the wealth of information in the Old Testament that is specifically talking about a Jew, the the Jewishness of it is undeniable if you study the Old Testament. That's really the point I'm trying to make. That being said, we're on to the next point of our argument. It took us four weeks. So in any case, five weeks, whatever it was, but who's counting, right? So um, this is the basic argument that we're trying to answer. Why would God exclude the church from the tribulation and just include Israel? So before we answer that question relating to the church, let's just ask the question, why is Israel going through the tribulational period? I mean, first of all, if they're not saved, they're part of the massive humanity that's going to face the wrath of God on earth. But as it pertains to them and their Jewishness, what is the purpose of having Israel in the tribulational period? Well, we see that the rebels, the unbelieving portion of Israel, because as we talked about before, there are always two parts of the nation of Israel. There's always the believing remnant of Israel, which is always a smaller number as it is for us. I mean, we're much smaller number in mass for believing Americans than unbelieving Americans, if you look at the country. And then there's always the unbelieving part of Israel, which is usually the mass of them. For us, I mean, from a statistical standpoint, that's going to be the most believers to unbelievers ratio we've ever seen, that a third of believing, or a third of Israel is going to end up being saved. Like, that's an incredible amount of people, like, from a ratio perspective. But we know that through the tribulational period, that these people are going to be brought through it. And it says that God is the one that's going to sustain them because God has to, in order for his promises to them to come true. So when we're looking at these promises, we know exactly why Israel has to be in the tribulational period. We know exactly why she has to, it's undeniable why she has to be there. But that begets the question, what do we do about the church? Do we have to be there too? Well, we're going to be going into some information about that right now. Looking forward to this for weeks. So in order to do this, we have to do two things. Kind of in the same manner that we did Israel. We have to define what the church is, which I said is going to be largely reviewed because we just finished Ephesians. Um, and then we have to figure out what are her promises about the future? Because we've just gone into extreme detail about what Israel's promises are relating to the future. So that being said, what is the church? Charles Caldwell Riley. A, a, a lot of us like Charles Riley. He said that the distinct character of the church is rooted in its unique relationship to the living Christ as the body of which he is the head. Now, that is completely contrary to what you would believe as a Jewish person not having any uh, revelation from the New Testament. So there are a lot of ways that you could go about talking about what the church is. That's what we're going to get started, started on today for the next 10 minutes. Um, I like to start 
in the upper room discourse. Now, these verses might seem a little bit small. I'm sorry about that. I had trouble fitting them all on this screen. (laughs) So this is a combination of information provided by uh, Schaefer in his systematic theology, as well as it's kind of been modified by people over time. Ryrie used a lot of this info. Uh, Andy Woods used a lot of this when he did his John study. So I'm piggybacking on all the hard work other people already did. So that being said, what we learn in the Upper Room Discourse, just by way of review, in the book of J- the Gospel of John, chapters, uh, some people include chapter 12 because some of the stuff in chapter 13 and 14 gets repeated in chapter 12, but generally speaking, it's chapter 13 through 17. That will be under discussion. I usually like starting in chapter 14. But this information, as Schaefer puts it, God is revealing seed truths that would have been foreign to the minds of the apostles that he would eventually expand in the New Testament through the revelation given through the apostles to the church. So we are not going to go through all of this information, but I just want to go through at least the titles of this, of the topics that are revealed in this time period, because again, the upper room discourse is prior to Jesus building his church. He starts building the church when he empowers them with the things he promises in the upper room discourse. So I like to start usually reading this portion of scripture when I'm trying to explain what the church is, Um, especially given the fact that the church doesn't even start until Acts chapter two. But this is the groundwork that Jesus made in preparation for the church leadership who are going to be the apostles. And he was giving them this information. So what what are the foreign ideas that Jesus portrays to the church? Well, the first one is the believer's oneness in Christ. That is a topic that Jesus reveals. Actually, let's just do this. Let's go to, um, let's go through a few of these because I think they're important. We're not going to go through all of them because we'll be here for three weeks going through the, the points. But the point of emphasis that I'd like to make are the fact that if you look down, you can see the reference in the book of John to a veiled reference about what God's going to do through the church. And then you'll see Paul or Peter talk about it in the church age. And he goes into a little bit more detail about what he's talking about. But again, these are things that Jesus was revealing that he knew they were going to encounter in the church age. So let's just read in the book of John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. And Jesus says in this portion that I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you father are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So he's revealing information about the Trinity in here. He's revealing information about the believers oneness in Christ that we are inhabited by Christ and that we learn, if you go back a little bit, verse 16, where it says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. He's giving a lot of information to the church in this in this time period. We learn that the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence inside the believer. That is a foreign concept to the church. That is a foreign concept to Israel. That is a new truth, a mystery that God revealed in this time period. Because the only information they had about that would have been the new covenant, which more pertained to the end of the tribulational period. It didn't necessarily pertain to uh, the church age. Two very easily distinguished and distinct time periods. We also hear that the believers are going to have union with Christ, that there's going to be this uh, satanic opposition to the ministry of the believers in Christ. We learn that there's a need, a constant need for the believer to have and maintain fellowship with Christ. Again, something that was not completely distinct, but there's such an emphasis on it. That's the entire purpose of the book of John is to warn of false teachers and stay inside fellowship with the Lord. And he does that by giving you contrasting options um, in kind of a strange writing style for a lot of us. But in any case, um, we look at the fact that they need these people, these, this entity that doesn't even exist yet, would actually need to abide in Christ in order to bear the fruit that God would have in them. Again, all of this truth being revealed in the book of John before the church was even started. Now, the goal here wasn't Jesus. This is not where Jesus started the church. I've heard some people say that too. Some commentaries go that direction. But the reason we believe that we're going to be getting into in a little bit. Um, because what is one of the promises he makes in this time? He makes the time and he reinforces this argument in Acts chapter 1 where he says they're to wait for the spirit which he has sent them. Because it's through that everything on this list is virtually impossible for anyone, even us right now, without the power of the Holy Spirit. So because we're inhabited by the Holy Spirit, that would then empower us for godly living. Like in Ephesians, where it says that we are to be filled with the Spirit, it's talking about how we're to be empowered by the Spirit in large measure. If anybody wants this slide, I can send them. Uh, I know it's kind of small to read, but there's, I, I liked this summary of it um, because there's just so much information. Even the rapture, we talked about John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 where Jesus not only talks about the fact that he's coming to take them to the father's house, but that that's going to be something in the future. I mean, all of these, all of this information is revealed in this time period. If you look at the 15th bullet point, Christ talks about how he's going to have a present session um, at the right hand of the father. Like all of these crazy things that we get in large detail in the new Testament, Jesus reveals in seed truth in the old. I have a quote from Char not Charles Wright, Lewis Berry Schaefer, where he talks about this in his systematic theology. He says, the discourse embodies, he's talking about the, all, not the Olivet discourse, but the upper room discourse, in germ form, every essential of that system of doctrine, which is distinctively Christian. Being addressed to Christians, it does not present truth, which is peculiar to Israel. And being addressed to those who are saved, it does not present any feature of salvation by grace, which is made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ, which truth is implied. This portion is like a seed plot 
in which all is found that is later developed in the epistles of the New Testament. It serves as Christ's farewell address to believers, those whom the Father has given him out of the cosmos world. In this field of truth, Christ excelled all other prophets that have ever spoken. It cannot but stimulate awe and wonder when the specific attention is given by the character and extent of Christ's predictive ministry. With reference to his own message, he stated that the Holy Spirit would not only bring his words to the disciples' remembrance, but that he would show them the things to come. The foretelling ministry of Christ included the immediate future actions of believers or individuals, his own death, resurrection, and ascension, the advent of the Spirit, the works of the Spirit in this age, the fact of the character of the new age, the church, the removal of the church from the world, his second coming, preceded by the great tribulation, the presence of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, the judgments of Israel and her kingdom glory, the judgment of the nations and their destiny, and the future state of both the saved and the unsaved. And I, I felt like that was a really good summary because, again, what we're trying to emphasize is the fact that this is seed truth that God is revealing to his apostles that would later come to fruition in the church age. The sideways point of emphasis I'm shooting for is the fact that the church did not exist just because he was giving them church age truth yet. Again, this is the God of the universe giving them information about what was about to come to pass. And I would say this is the hinge point that kind of kept the apostles where they needed to be through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, moving on into the church age. Now, this begets the question that we're going to kind of finish on today. Are the church and Israel synonymous entities? They're not. <laughs> they're, they're certainly not. So the first question, and this is not, it sounds like a ridiculous question after all that we've looked at, but there are a lot of people that would, val would value this information. So we're going to look at this first. Is the church another name for Israel? No, no, it is not. So we're going to look at a few verses that talk about that. And for the sake of time, I'm going to move through them a little bit more quickly than I did before. It says in Acts chapter three, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we had made them walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned the presence of Pilate when he had decided to, re to release him. It says in chapter four, verse eight, that then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the, Na the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, the man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which he became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation by no one else, and there is no other name under heaven which has been given among them by which we must be saved. What is, he, what is he saying in these verses? It seems like he's actually picking out Israel and talking about them by name, is that they're distinct still. It's, again, that's what I'm trying to show you. Where are we right now? We're in Acts chapter 4. I already revealed the fact that the church was starting in Acts chapter 3. 
So why, if the church dissolved all national entities and Israel is no more distinct from the church than the Gentile nations, and if they have nothing special about them, why on earth are they still pointing out Israel with some level of focus and specificity? That seems rather strange. So it says, if you move on to chapter five, uh, we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to finish in a minute. So we're, we're just about out of time. It says, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now then the high priest and the associates came and they called the council together, even all the Senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders for the prison house to be for them to be brought. Because again, and we'll go into the rest of the verses in a little bit, probably next week, because we are, we are certainly out of time. What I'm trying to focus on, which will really hit hard when we get through Acts going into Romans and 1 Corinthians, is that these uh, distinctions don't disappear just because the church age began. Now, we're not talking about what the church is quite yet. We're not talking about who she is in Christ, what God has done for her, the nature of the body of Christ, that analogy that God gives them with Christ as the head, all of those things that are specific to the church, all of those a little bit still yet future in our discussion, we're just looking at this idea of the distinctions between the church and Israel. And again, I meant for all of these to kind of be together, um, but we kind of ran out of time. But that's, that's kind of the point that I'm trying to get across that we'll kind of finish next week, which is that they are still yet distinct. Um, again, if you think about who the church is right now, uh, the church still has her national distinctions in Christ. There, it is possible to be a Jewish Christian. Again, they don't have to follow the Mosaic law, but they still have that lineage, even though they're part of the church. And it is through their descendants, hopefully not at this point. I mean, we're hoping that this God wraps this up pretty fast. Um, looking at the Ukrainian situation and other stuff. like, But again, per God's inferred doctrine of eminence, every generation of Christians from the first one up until now has always thought they were the last generation. We might still have 400 generations after us. I have no idea. I hope not. I don't think so. But I'm just saying we have to expect the Lord could come back at any moment. And that's been something as we're going to be looking at that has been prominent through church history, even when they were denying the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. They still thought they were the last generation because that information is so inferred in the New Testament that if you read the New Testament, you'll come to that conclusion. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promises and the glory that you will have as you resurrect the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulational period. We know these things are going to happen. We know that they have to happen because you are God who does not lie. And these are promises that you've made to them. Now, Lord, I ask as we're going in this study that you would help us to understand uh, in greater measure, not just the distinctions between the church and Israel, but through an understanding of those distinctions that we would have a better handle on what our job is right now. Um, that we would do the deeds that you would want us to do through you in light of the truth we know about you. Um, because we want to, because we're moved by your Holy Spirit, not for any other reason. Now, Lord, I ask that you be with us as we're studying the book of Revelation in just a little bit. And I ask that you empower us and give us discernment 
as we try to learn what your word has to say to us. As always, Lord, as the world is going into a spiral, we pray for the people of Ukraine. We also pray for the Russians. Um, Both desperately need to know about the work you did for them on the cross. We thank you for the what you have done for us, both on the cross as well as in our lives, as you've been empowering us for godly living, you've been teaching us through your Holy Spirit, and giving us information that we can then use to act upon to become better tools for you in the very limited time we're on this earth. I praise you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.